you would take your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, we will begin in verse 9. We'll just look at the first, thir- uh, the first few verses, 9 through 13, which is a, a smaller section of a larger text that begins in verse 9, and I think goes all the way through chapter 13. We're kind of breaking this up uh, one bite at a time. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. There's a phrase that we use in the English language. It is, I guess at this point, a cliché. It is suggested it may be the oldest English phrase still in use that doesn't come from the Bible. So, this phrase goes all the way back to the 1400s. It's connected to a particular kind of hunting they would do, bird hunting in particular. And I think the particular kind of bird they were hunting were grouse. There are two stages to this hunt. In the first stage, there would be those folks who were responsible for rousing the bird out of their habitats and where they usually lived were in these bushes. So they were responsible for rousing them out and getting them out and going so that the folks who were skilled in hunting could then go after the birds, free to hunt, shoot, whatever it was they were doing, they were then free to go after their game. And so the folks who were responsible for getting the birds out of the bush were described as people who were able to beat around the bush. You've heard of this phrase, right? So, so now, how do we use it? In fact, it wasn't that long after uh, this phrase came about that that is how it was used, metaphorically, that the folks who were beating around the bush weren't really good at the game. The only thing they could do was beat around the bush. They couldn't actually hunt the bird, okay, but they could get the bird out And so that was their job, and it came to be known, those folks unable to get to the heart of the matter, those folks who wouldn't get to the point, they were described as beating around the bush. And my guess is most of us here would say you get impatient when people beat around the bush. Maybe you've even used that phrase with somebody. Somebody's trying to give you information. Somebody's trying to express something. Maybe in particular something that is difficult. Maybe a hard message. Maybe a straightforward message. You can tell they're having trouble getting the message out. And you may say something like, stop beating around the bush. Just get to the point. Some may be thinking, Pastor, all right, let's get to the point here, big man. I know you've been on vacation for a week, but come on, we got things to do. So on one hand, I think we get impatient with people who beat around the bush, but I think we should also be honest. Sometimes it's hard 
when people get straight to the point. I I think that's the case here, beginning in Romans 12 and verse 9. It's one of those sections, we started it a few weeks ago, where Paul absolutely does not beat around the bush. There's no long, lengthy, theological explanation. There's no uh, uh, wrangling over difficult, deep, philosophical ideas. This is Paul with bullet point after bullet point after bullet point telling us exactly what it looks like to live the Christian life. Quite frankly, after reading through this, studying this, obviously doing it ahead of time before you all get it, I wish Paul would have beat around the bush a little bit more, all right? These verses to me I find really difficult. And here's why I find them really difficult. Because they're really straightforward. See, you and I often do well when we can hide behind the guise of, the Bible's complicated, I don't understand it, what does this mean, how do you apply this? We like to hide behind the complicated nature of the Bible. It's too much theology for me. I wish they'd just get straight to the point. Well, here you go. Paul, in essence, knocks us back and forth with more than 20 exhortations just in this chapter, leaving us no room to hide, nowhere to run, straightforward to the point. But in another sense, this is really helpful, because really what Paul is doing in these verses is he's taking us up on a question we may ask after reading verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12. Paul says, I'm to give my life as a living sacrifice. I am to give myself to that which is the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And we hear that language and we may wonder, what is the will of God? What is good and pleasing and perfect to God? What is a living sacrifice? Well, I'm glad you asked, right? Because Paul gives it to us unvarnished, straight, clear, unambiguous. And so here's how we're taking this text, because as I mentioned just a minute ago, I think it goes from verse 9 all the way to the end of chapter 13. There's a lot of points. Another way I could have started this sermon was a few weeks ago, I could have said, we've got 37 points to this one sermon, all right? And you'd have gone, oh, why? I mean, that would have been brutal. Say, Pastor, why'd you just tell us that now? I don't know. I've been on vacation for a week. All right, so There's no telling what may come out over the next few minutes. So we're going to take it one bite at a time. And our first bite is verses 9 through 13. I think Paul addresses specifically some qualities of Christian living, in particular as it pertains to aspects of love and as it pertains to our relationships with one another and then enduring in the Christian life. And and so... We've been looking at what are these marks then of faithful Christian living. And there are nine, I can, at least nine, we can discern from these opening verses. And last week we got to the first, two weeks ago, we got to the first one. Paul opens up with the foundational expectation, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, let love be sincere, let it be genuine. Paul's opening words to us are simple, straightforward. As I noted a couple of weeks ago, so simple and so straightforward Paul doesn't even use a verb here. He just says, love genuine. The love sincere. That's literally how it could read. 
And, and so, the first expectation, the foundational expectation, a high water mark of Christian living. Such an important quality that the New Testament suggests, if I show a consistent pattern of being unloving, I should question whether or not I'm even saved. That's how important this is. Let love be without hypocrisy. But then Paul moves on, and there's a second quality, characteristic of faithful Christian living, that if you want to take notes, you can take notes, you'll be some blanks there to fill in in the back of your bulletin, and that is be holy. Be holy. Look again there at verse 9. After that opening statement, that in many ways serves as like like the, the main thesis in a way, I mean, I think this is the foundational basic concept that then gets more elaboration as Paul goes on. Notice the next two phrases in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, I want to go ahead and point out something. Look already at verse 10. Verse 10, then Paul says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another. So, reading that all together, I don't know how the verse strikes you, how all this together strikes you, but when Paul begins by saying, let love be without hypocrisy, and then he says, abhor what is evil. Is that jarring and jolting to anybody else? I mean, is that kind of an odd way? If, if I were writing this, which is a really unwise thing probably to say, all right? But I mean, what I'm thinking is, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, then jump to verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. In my mind, that all makes sense, right? That all flows. In other words, I would think let love be genuine, and then as an expression of that, Paul then would go on and say, so, Be kindly affectionate, be devoted to one another, show honor and preference to one another. Yeah, all that makes sense, but that's not what Paul does. Before he gets to some of those specifics about how we relate to one another in the church, his next phrase following such a striking statement, let love be without hypocrisy. And i got to say, as much as I hate to admit it, I kind of like what the NIV does here. The NIV doesn't use the word abhor, the NIV uses the word hate. Hate what is evil. Is that striking to anybody else? Let love be sincere and hate what is evil. Some of you parents even cringe that the pastor from the pulpit said the word hate, right? We, we warn our children. That's a strong word. We don't say hate, right? Dislike. Don't prefer, but the word hate and the word abhor. I mean, these, this is a strong word, especially to follow this. So, is Paul just kind of speaking off the cuff here? Is he just kind of riffing? Is that what he's doing? I don't know about you, but Paul doesn't strike me as a riffing kind of guy. Strikes me as very calculated, <laughs> intentional. One point follows another. As I've said before, Paul doesn't do random. I think these are connected. And I think before Paul goes on to give fuller explanation of the nature of our love expressed toward one another, he qualifies what love looks like by using categories of holiness. So, Pastor, I, 
I don't know. I don't know if I still see the connection here. How is there a connection? Let love be sincere, but then abhor that which is evil. Uh, Let's build it this way. Let's put it in the context of today. I, I don't think it would be a shock to anybody if I said our culture is really good at perverting things that shouldn't be perverted, right? Anybody agree to that? Does anybody think I'm wrong? Maybe if you do, tell me afterwards, all right? But no, I think our culture gets everything just right. But my guess is you're here, church like Tabernacle, Sunday morning, you probably realize that our culture often takes that which, you know, should be disdained and rejected and not only doesn't condemn it, but embraces it. Probably an area where this happens as much as anywhere, is when it comes to love. What does it mean to love? We bring this up almost every time the term pops up in the New Testament. Because the New Testament language of love was different from the language of love in its own day, and certainly much different than the nature of love in our day. We often think about love in terms of emotion. We talk about love, you know, as if it's a feeling We might even talk about it as if it's an energy. It's something we fall into. It's something we can fall out of. We use love for everything, right? We talk about, in one sentence, we might say, you know, we we love our spouse. We love our children. We love the beach. We love our pet. We love ice cream. In other words, we might string all of these things together, but we don't mean the same thing, right? Then add to that what has come to be the standard operating definition of love in our culture today. Love requires you to not only accept me for whatever choices I make, but champion whatever cause I champion. Right? In other words, if you don't love what I love, and, and, if, and if for some reason, if what you think or believe challenges something that is, that is part of who I think I am, then you're not being loving, right? Obviously, you hear that language, what's the first thing we think of? Sexual revolution going on in our country. It's been going on for years, reaching at really significant levels today, Right? I mean, that, that's the nature of love in our culture today. Not only should you not disagree with my lifestyle, but you have to support it if you want to claim to love me. Paul's words shatter that false idol as much as anything else in Scripture. Because Paul pairs, let love be without hypocrisy, with his next phrase, abhor that which is evil. Hate that which is evil. You know what this tells me? You ready for this, church? You're not going to hear this anywhere else, all right? Unless you go to another like-minded church, all right, or listen to a like-minded preacher, teacher, or read a like-minded book, but love makes distinctions. What? Seriously, Pastor? Love, dare I even use a bad word? Now I've got your attention, right? 
Like, good, now he's going to say something. Dare I even say that love discriminates? Boy, that just sent a lot of you way off, right? In other words, you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Too much sun, right? Salt water in the ears, maybe? Something's going on. Here's what I think he's getting at. Here's why, here's why I think this pairing is so critical. Foundation of love, being without hypocrisy, it being genuine and sincere, yet at the same time recognizing that genuine love doesn't just give unqualified support. Genuine love comes in the context of God's truth. Can't separate these things. In fact, I would suggest that the biblical understanding of love and what it's getting at here, it's not that I demonstrate a hateful spirit, all right? So don't misunderstand this. It doesn't mean that, oh, great, now I can just be rude and obnoxious. Pastor said so, Sunday morning, all right? No, that's not what it means. It means I love what God loves, but I should also hate what God hates. I know, I know that's, that's striking, isn't it? But genuine love, love that is without hypocrisy, is a love that recognizes there are some things that people engage in. There are choices, there are sins. That which is wrong, that which is evil, is destructive and deadly. And it would be unloving for me not to say something. Right? Here's what this means, by the way, church. The person to whom love is being expressed doesn't necessarily get to determine whether or not you've actually showed them love. They don't get to determine that. What determines, what sets out for us genuine love? Is it me as the one doing the loving? Well, no, it's not that either. It's the Word of God. The Bible pairs these things, I think, intentionally. Let love be with sincerity, yes, genuine. Let, let, it, let it be real. Don't, don't engage in a hypocritical love, but engage in a love that is so real that you're willing to tell somebody. You're willing to speak the truth. You're willing to recognize that for some, there are actions and attitudes that are deadly and destructive. And it would be unloving of me to just simply endorse or encourage. We could even use a modern psychological term. That is... Enabling, right? It's enabling otherwise. I need to be willing to love, but love in light of the truth. I think think the encouragement here then to us is that we would rightly distinguish the way in which we love. Now, again, don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean that then we are to be hateful. We are to be loving, kind, compassionate, good-hearted, faithful, devoted people to others. We never, we never have a right to be hateful, rude, obnoxious. These, these are not qualities that are of the Spirit. But again, though, we, we are expected to be clear on the truth. Now, let, let's, make, let's make something plain. This isn't just about, say, sexual ethics in the country. You know what else God hates? I mean, He hates gossip, right? He hates anger. He hates sin in all of its forms. In other words, it's, it's not just this one issue. I just use that as an illustration. In fact, there's all kinds of 
ways in which you and I might not be faithful to loving with sincerity because we are willing to overlook that which is evil. Yet the Word makes it clear. There are some things that God says, this is forbidden. We draw a line at that. i got got some verses here. You may be familiar with the the phrase. It it shows up in a couple of places, especially in Proverbs. Uh, There are six things which the Lord hates, yet, yet seven which are an abomination to Him. This language shows up in a few places, but it's striking. Six things which God hates, yes, seven which He would abhor. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. In other words, I put this all in this same context. The expectation is you and I would love the things that God loves and love in a way that God has loved and be loving toward others in a similar fashion, yet at the same time standing up for the truth. Let me give you another example. It comes from Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, that opening chapter of Isaiah's prophecy is laying out God's indictment against Judah and Israel and Uh, making it clear about their failure to fulfill God's covenant. And one of the things that God hates is the way they fake worship. So so in, in the context of this, he's saying, stop bringing me your offerings. Apparently what the people were doing is they were still going through the ritual of religion. They were going through all of the acts that were expected of them. And God says this, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. So, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. How's that? Is that anybody's go-to verse? Anybody got a live verse for that one? Is that one you think, yeah. What's your favorite verse? It's Isaiah 1, 14 through 16. No doubt, Right? But those are strong words. God tells His own people, I hate the way you are trying to worship me in work without heart, in deed without genuine love. Which, by the way, this is a whole aside here. This is another profound reminder Who's the most important person when it comes to worship? It's God Himself, right? You know, God doesn't care what your preferences are. Right back at me, preacher, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's not the primary concern. It's not the primary concern. He's the primary concern. And you and I would do well to carefully consider the man manner in which we approach this time together. I would do well to consider the manner in which I approach this time together. Because what really matters is not leaving here thinking, oh, I like that song. Not that you shouldn't, but I mean, I just, you know, the, it's great if you like the songs, right? It's great if you like the music. It's, it's great if you like what happens. But really, I should be living here with the first thought. This should be my first thought in my mind. Did I honor my God today? Because if I at least wasn't thinking that and doing what I'm doing here, I could run the risk of being under that which God hates. 
And in other words, I'm just giving these as other examples. The Bible does tell us the things which God would abhor. And you and I as believers should understand that should be our same criteria. We should hate the things that God hates. Love what God loves. Now again, this doesn't mean that we are not to be loving toward others. In fact, the gospel itself gives us the way to do this. Because what did God do for us in Christ in the gospel? God demonstrated His love for us when? After we got all cleaned up and we were worth loving? We finally got our act together and God said, yep, you're worth it, I'll love you now. Is that when God loved me? No, God's love was demonstrated to me in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died. In other words, God's love was expressed to me in the midst of that which God hates. So the gospel itself gives me an understanding then of what it means to to, to love genuinely, sincerely, without hypocrisy at at the same time in the context of abhorring what is evil. I think we can make then another application of this, by the way. I think we should ask ourselves, in what, in what ways do we find ourselves not abhorring and hating evil to the degree we should? In fact, let me put this another way. Are there things God says are evil that we find entertaining? Mm. Again, you know, it's one of these verses, it's one of these ideas. Now, you know, I'm not suggesting that you're going to be able to live your life where you avoid all evil. That's not going to happen, right? Verse doesn't say avoid all evil, but it does say abhor it. That should be my heart. That, that should be the result of a transformed life through the gospel. And by the way, we can't rip that out of that context, right? This kind of reaction should come with a redeemed life. This is the kind of reaction that comes with those who recognize that they themselves are sinners, that Christ in His death atoned for their sin, paid the price for their sin, and that in His resurrection there's freedom from sin. So that as a believer, one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, I am now free to live a life in genuine love and abhorring that which is evil. This is the nature of the gospel working itself out in me. So believer... Those who claim to be under this blood of Christ, those who claim to have received this love demonstrated to you while you were yet a sinner, are are you living this way? Now, there's one more phrase there, and we'll end with this one. Cling to what is good. Cling to what is good. So that's why I label all of this under one category of be holy. Hate evil, cling to what is good. It's not uncommon uh, pairings in the Bible. You'd find it all throughout Old and New Testament. This idea that, that I, I have these, these, these ideas where one then enables the other, right? If, if I abhor evil, I'll be more inclined than to the good. If I cling to what is good, then I'll be more likely to abhor evil. Now, the word cling here, it's the same word sometimes that's translated as, especially in like King James, as cleave. Now, I know we hear the word cleave, you might think of the word cleaver, right? Which then may make you think of the big knife that you cut stuff with. It might make you think of leave it to beaver. I don't know, all right, but whatever it makes you think of, it may not be what the New Testament 
means, this is the same word that is used to describe the nature of the marital bond. That, that, I, that the husband will leave his mother and will cleave unto his wife. Now think about that. We won't take that too far, all right? But that's a, that's a rather intimate use of the term. But Paul is saying that is how much I should then love that which is good. I should cling to it. I should tenaciously wrap myself around it. It should become a part of me. To abhor that which is evil. To cling to that which is good. Similar language when Paul tells us in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report... If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. This, is, this, again, I think is the important distinction about let love be with sincerity, without hypocrisy. I abhor what is evil. I cling to that which is good. I give myself to doing that which God loves, which God endorses, which God says is holy and appropriate, so, I think we, again, have come under the gun of Paul here, so to speak. I mean, he's, he's left us without anywhere to hide. I mean, maybe you read these verses and you just don't think anything of them. Maybe you read verses like, let love be without hypocrisy, and you think, yeah, I've got that. If that was your thought, by the way, you've not thought about it long enough. And you hear these words, abhor what is evil. Yeah, I, I do that pretty well. Cling to what is good. Yeah, I, I would just encourage you to do a deep evaluation of heart and mind. Because there's no wiggle room here, really. It's not a whole lot of nuance here. Does this identify me, in particular the way I love, but even in just my general Christian conduct? Because remember, the nature of my love is to love God and to love others. Am I abhorring that which is evil? Do I hate that which is evil? I cling to that which is good. Does that describe your Christian walk? And so my encouragement to you, you know, first as a believer, if, you're, if you are a believer here, understand this is what the gospel has produced in you. This is what the gospel can produce in you. This is, this is what the cross and the empty tomb means. Because of what Christ has done, you and I can live this way. And if that is not true of you, I would encourage you then to submit yourself to His Word. Submit yourself to His Spirit. Let the Spirit of God do a wholehearted evaluation. And to determine... The nature in which you live out your Christian faith. Of course, if you're here today and you are not a believer, I haven't really brought this up, but these words are also difficult. Because that means that all that you do stands outside of that which God says is good. To live a life in rebellion against Christ, meaning if I've never surrendered to Christ as my Savior, if I've never confessed that I am a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, if I've never trusted in Christ and Christ alone, the Bible says then I stand outside of that which God says is good. I myself am then the target of what would be God's judgment. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, my, I would implore you, submit yourself to the gospel. Trust a crucified and resurrected Lord that you might then walk in Christian faithfulness. If you'd like to know more about that, I'll be right down front. would love an opportunity to talk with you. After the service, I'd love an opportunity to talk with you as well. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. After I pray, then we will sing.
And, and as we do so, we will be reminded of a good and gracious Savior who holds us, holds us fast. And so let me ask us all then to consider the nature in which we are living in faithfulness to Him who holds us by the precious hope of His gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You for gathering Your people. We thank You for Your Word. We, we submit ourselves to it. We pray that Your Spirit would continue to bring Your Word to bear on our lives, that we might walk in faithfulness to You, that You, as our God, would do in us what needs to be done, that we might live all for Your glory. Again, Father, we thank You for Your Word and for Your Gospel for saving us, setting us free, securing us for all eternity. We yield ourselves to you, praying you do in us what needs to be done, that we might bring you great glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.